And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. <laughs> oh, boy. My light is falling onto the table here. I fixed it. I'm going to fix it. Uh, always the tech. It's always the tech that gets me, boys and girls. I'm telling you. <laughs> what it is. Anyway, it's the 24th of April. This is Jennifer Stone. Yes, it's April and blossom time. Oh, blossom time. So will you not come home, brother? Home to us again. Oh, yes, the poet John Maysfield. His poems were favorites of my father's. And, oh, so many of those poems seem out of date now in the 21st century. Although... I'm not so sure. I had a little flash the other night that, you know, what with the new poets, the slam poets, the hip-hop, all that business, we're going to be back to Shakespeare before we know it anyway. No, no, no. Uh, still, many poets in today's world, the scene, they turn away from sentimentality. Yes, that was not the fashion, not the fashion, still not the fashion. Uh... I still love Blossom Time, you know. It's the those rich pink plum blossoms the Japanese call the spring appearance. Uh, now, I know there's a better adjective than pink. I don't like the word pink. There's about five words that would fit, but uh, I've forgotten them. Forgotten so much, I tell you. <laughs> It's National Poetry Month. Roll back the sands of time. Search the 20th century, yes. Ah, I remember the time when the great changes came. Comparative literature was out, you know. You couldn't do something as silly as compare Howard's end to Brideshead Revisited. That was old hat. Never mind. After World War One, here in the West, Western culture, they call it, uh, in the 1950s, when I was a college girl, 
It was old T.S. Eliot, uh, Thomas Stearns Eliot. He led the way. He was the, what do you call it? The guy at the top of the list. Uh, those of us trying to seek a poetic expression, you know, something with the same emotive power of the earlier poetry, but without that Victorian sweetness. Uh, <laughs> yes, very interesting uh, how that goes, the the uh, uh, term. Well, let's see. I guess the the kind of poetry that's now passe, uh, not just unsophisticated, out of date or corny, but the kind that my mother liked to refer to scornfully. Uh, she referred to Matthew Arnold's phrase. He was serious. Uh, his use of the term sweetness and light. She always said, don't give me any more of that. Sweetness and light. Uh, and then she used a word I can't use on the air. Anyway, I thought it was all about the mystery of life. You know, uh, the um, <laughs> the ecstasy of art. Uh, okay, you know, I, I thought that poetry, poetry was supposed to, you know, take the top of your head off. That's what Emily Dickinson said. Uh, oh, boy, this official National Poetry Month gives me a headache because it's all about the prizes, you know. I I don't like the prizes, but maybe that's because I haven't had very many, just just a few. Uh, I still go and read all the memory gems, you know, uh, all that antique stuff uh, for those old hearts, words that bring back all my dead dears, some of them. Those poems seem so sad, and uh, I guess sentimentality does make the modern reader turn away and irritation, you know. Uh, sentiment is cool. That's what poetry is made of. But sentimentality, that means excess of feeling, you know, going over the top. Uh, even morbidity, self-indulgence. Uh, oh, you know, you can, it's like porn. You know it when you see it. <laughs> I still believe the way I did when I first read Oh, Edna St. Vincent Millay as a uh, oh, maybe 13, 14-year-old. Uh, I was into the the ecstasy of art, the ancient myths. Uh, today, I study Eros and Thanatos. I just put those up on the, up on the wall there behind my typewriter. Uh, put pictures, yes. Uh, Eros is the life force. You know, Aphrodite is one manifestation. Uh, think Marilyn Monroe, but it's what a wag that I know calls the Venus on the half shell point of view. Now, it is the custom these days to denigrate Eros, uh, or beneath us. Uh, we know that romance can kill, but, uh, the, the feminine, you know, the feminine principle, this is a source of humor in a world where the master narrative is absolutely masculine, you know. Uh, the Aeneid, all those ancient Greeks, that's where it all started. Anyway, it's the warrior, the warrior, uh, that's our 
national, uh, national, not our national anthem, it's our, our, our national narrative, you know. Here comes the warrior with his sword uh, into the valley of death, rode the 600. Anyway, Thanatos reigns. But as we know, the winner brings death. Uh, Emily Bronte used to describe some of these things. Uh, uh, human existence, the ways of the world. Years ago, I published some essays on the Brontes uh, as if we needed more. But anyway, I had to have my spin. And I remember reading something that intrigued me. Uh, when Emily wrote about nature, that was her god, uh, she sounds like Werner Herzog. And I, I was reading Werner Herzog describing the violence of life in the rainforest. Uh, it's all about less Blank's documentary film, Burden of Dreams, uh, in which Herzog describes primal existence as unending murder. This is the background for his movie, Fritz Caraldo. But back in the 19th century, Emily was staying in Brussels. And uh, <laughs> her sister was in love with the headmaster. Oh, those were terrible days. Here, she, she had an essay titled The Butterfly. I love it. I used to use it in school. And uh, the kids thought that it kind of described, uh, to call that, a 19th century nihilist. Emily Bronte describes a forest scene, and she writes about what was then called natural order. You know how it is. These guys are always trying to put things in order, measure. She finds in nature not order, but insanity. <laughs> yes, I, yes, life exists on a principle of destruction. Every creature must be relentless. Uh, it must be the instrument of death to others or himself cease to live. The universe appeared to me, me being Emily Bronte, a vast machine constructed only to bring forth evil. Emily Bronte goes on to write that transmutation is possible and that ugly caterpillars turn into splendid butterflies and that suffering is the seed for a divine harvest and harmony can and must be created out of chaos. It is from the genesis of these ideas that she created those libidinous creatures, Catherine Earnshaw and Heathcliff, those explosions of the human id. Then she sets out to try to civilize them in the next generation. Uh, that is, they self-destruct, but their children mellow out. It's very interesting, whenever they make movies about... Uh, Wuthering Heights, they cut the second half of the book in which the uh, children of Kathy and Heathcliff become, what do we call, balanced, sane, uh, kind, thoughtful, intelligent human beings. Uh, when it comes to literature, everybody likes the rough stuff. They like the first half of the book when... See, I think uh, Catherine can be said in her invalid invalidism to be suicidal, and Heathcliff, in his fury, wrath, and anger, is homicidal. Those are the two the two trips. Yes, uh, 
<laughs> Naturally, when Hollywood got around to making the movie, uh, only that primal stuff got up on the screen. Mm, that civilized androgynous second generation. They left all that out. It doesn't, doesn't make for fun literature, you know. The sexy stuff is demigods, masculine and feminine archetypes as portrayed in Catherine Earnshaw and that gypsy Heathcliff. It's an epic drama. The drives of these characters are like the passions of Greek tragedy, fatal. Yes, mythos, that's what it is. It's all about our uh, innermost, innermost feelings, id. Catherine Earnshaw Linton, the self-centered girl. Yes, uh, so interesting. Catherine says of Heathcliff, she says, he's not a rough diamond, a pearl containing oyster of a rustic. He is a fierce, pitiless, wolfish man. You know how it is these days. They always try to make the the um, violent, brutal hero into a uh, dude with a heart of gold, you know. Think of, um, oh, Stanley Kowalski, uh, Tennessee Williams, didn't mean, uh, well, he wouldn't have chosen Marlon Brando, who obviously is a uh, thinking, feeling, uh, not androgynous, but uh, uh, a loving human being. Uh, Tennessee Williams wanted people like, let's see who played it, uh, Tony Quinn, Anthony Quinn, yes, he was the the proper choice for Stanley Kowalski because Stanley Kowalski was really a rat. Uh, there's something. There's something about um, what is that? I, I guess it's <laughs> those of us who teethed on the New Testament, right? We always want to make the the bad guys into uh, loving people sooner or later. I don't know. Uh, hmm. I think. Uh, you know, the really rotten folks uh, have a kind of, you know, schizophrenic tendencies. Uh, they're totally indifferent to the claims of others. You know how that is. <laughs> they get a car, drive it into the street, anywhere. They just, you know, uh, kill people. Uh, uh, I think that these are the lost natures. They were ferocious sometimes, I think. Uh, I don't know. Sociopath, psychopath. Uh, they just make for terrific reading. Uh, I don't know how we reach through through the darkness, beyond the darkness. Uh, I don't know how we get to the stage of civilized refinement. I think it probably begins in the cradle. That's what Virginia Woolf says. She says, fascism begins in the cradle, in the private home. I think it begins in the genes. But what do I know? I think that these, what do we call them, devils, these psychos, are pretty much born, not made, although... There are certain influences that seem to be seen. I was thinking of Timothy McVeigh raised in a gun culture and all that stuff. Uh, never mind. Uh, let me put away here 
Emily Bronte. I I find lately that much as I love National Poetry Month, uh, I'm into prose. I kind of want things to be solid. I, I think that Eros and Thanatos in prose are a little different. Uh, hmm. Read The Little Mermaid. There we go. Uh, romantic, romantic. Uh, so interesting. Uh, that Thanatos guy, he seems to be, what do you call that? He seems to be <laughs> on the warpath out here killing folks right and left. And they all talk about a motive. Motive. Uh, this is very interesting. Random murder. It just means that people have gone berserk. The, it isn't a question of motive. The motive is to cause suffering to others. Uh, never mind which others, you know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, actually, it seems to me that, <laughs> that the Brontes are, what do you call that? Uh, kind of out of date. They do understand all these psychiatric layers. But we have come to a point where maybe we need to let all that go. Uh, just let go of all that, uh, what do we call it, psychology nonsense. Uh, we need to do uh, neuroscience. Yes, we need to study the brain, figure out why we are what we are. There's a series that I love on television called Genius. Uh, I believe that they're beginning a uh, new, a new, uh, bio. It's a, uh, what you call it? It's a, uh, uh, biopic. They're biopics. And the one I'm watching at present is about, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the great Einstein, Alfred Einstein. Tonight, I think it's tonight begins Picasso. Now, the one about Einstein knocks me out because he refuses to get involved in any of the silly little things, you know, like national politics. Uh, he waits until the fascists spit in his eye, you know. His wife keeps telling him they have to get out of town. But as he explains over and over and over again, all those things are ephemeral, you know, what matters is mathematics, relativity, physics. Physics is reality. I think I take his point. At the same time, those of us who are getting our teeth kicked out tend to think that uh, politics is a, a big deal. Uh, the artists do the same thing. They, they denigrate. Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, the uh, The... Political BS, let's call it. Uh, I, I think somebody, George Santayana, he says that, uh, art, art is always beyond politics, but it's never above it, you know? Garcia Loco was horribly murdered by those fascists. Uh, we have to attend to little things like who is running the government uh, 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 and whether or not we are all in difficulty because of the environment uh, I was thinking about the the last of the Brontes dear Charlotte, the one who lived to be 39 years old and uh, nobody told her that uh, 
pregnancy can kill you if you have a little touch of tuberculosis and go out walking when your husband tells you to and get a respiratory disease and uh, die at 39. But she was relatively old. Her sister died at 29. Branwell also 28 or 29. Uh, I don't know. It's so interesting. Last night, again, I was reading those descriptions, those wonderful descriptions of Emily. Emily uh, sitting in a chair in the living room and thinking that her will, her emotional powers, could keep her alive. Apparently, uh, she died in the early evening and about two o'clock in the afternoon, she told her family whoever was present, that she was willing to see a doctor. Now, (laughs) for a clever girl, she just wasn't paying attention, you know. These days, most people do argue whether they'd rather die of the bug or the bomb, whichever I think technology is definitely, uh, let's call it the devil, uh, the dark side of things is going to kill us all. People laugh at me when I say I don't want any of that machinery. I suppose it is a little silly, but uh, let me just read you for kicks uh, some little bits about the Brondes. I just, they're the kind of people I would just love to meet. Uh, 21st century versions of these girls, young women living with their widowed father there's another story and dying off one by one their only brother uh, an alcoholic but mostly a drug addict Uh, uh, what was it he stood on his feet as long as he could and uh, uh, almost died on his feet apparently he did collapse at one point Uh, mind over matter boys and girls but as my doctor father used to say the matter is all that matters uh here's a third person account uh mrs gaskell the great biographer of the uh the what is that novelist we call her i guess the novelist she should have been a critic the novelist charlotte uh anyway She's writing about the whole family, and here's what she says. She says, The first impression made on a visitor by the sisters was that Emily was a tall, long-armed girl, more fully grown than her sister Charlotte, and extremely reserved in manner. I distinguish reserve from shyness, because I imagine shyness would please if he knew how. Whereas reserve is indifferent, whether it pleases or not. And, like her elder sister Charlotte, uh, was shy. Emily was reserved. Mrs. Gaskell adds, They all of them thought there could be no doubt about Branwell's talent. His talent for drawing. I've seen an oil painting of his done, I know not when, probably in the early 1820s. It was a group of the three sisters. Not much better than sign painting, I thought, as to execution. But the likenesses were, I thought, admirable. 
on the deeply shadowed side was Emily, with Anne's gentle face resting on her shoulder. Emily's countenance struck me as full of power, Charlotte's of solicitude, Anne's of tenderness. Uh, and uh, the biography goes on and on. It's one of my sacred texts. I have it on the shelf. Uh, I don't know why I keep going back to these writers. Uh, lately, I even reread some of Anne Bronte's work, The Tenant of Wildfeld Hall. It's a little book that should be given to people. Uh, oh, what is that group? Uh, the families of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you know, they're supposed to help the alcoholics in their family anyway. Uh, Anne Bronte's Tenant of Wildfelt Hall, all about how to live and survive in a home with a male alcoholic. I found it fascinating because... Uh, <laughs> It was all absolutely familiar. Now, I wish I had time to read you this description of Branwell's death. I managed to avoid some of the deaths in my family, although they were all uh, the products of alcoholism. Now, I must stop. It's, uh, it's National Poetry Month. Let's read a poem. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm going to read you. A nonsense poem from my collection, Archie and Mehitable. I love Archie and Mehitable. It's all about a cockroach and a cat. <laughs> it's uh, the famous, the famous, uh, what do you call that? Uh, famous saga of this cockroach who learned how to type. He is a transmuted poet. His soul has been reincarnated in a cockroach. And he writes letters to the guy who owns the typewriter he uses. Aha, uh -huh, this is dated sometime in uh, April, I think, so it qualifies as <laughs> part of National Poetry Month. The title of the poem is Crazy as a Bed Bug. I will read to you. Boss, he writes, Boss, I heard another cockroach say after reading your stuff that you were as crazy as a bed bug. I said to him, my boss may be crazy, but a bed bug is not. A bedbug is the calmest of insects. Cool, self-possessed, practical, pragmatic, efficient. <laughs> mm, he has very little idealism and almost no sense of honor. He has a quite unpleasant personality. He has never been touched by the fine grace of romance. He is essentially materialistic and a plodder. Mm, but the cockroach retains his object with the utmost skill and makes his escape with a deal of cleverness and low cunning. The solid, earthy, unimaginative qualities are his. Deny the bedbug great spiritual power, and I will agree with you. But you are quite wrong in calling him crazy. The bedbug is anything but crazy. <laughs> well, you are crazy, said this cockroach. I should rather be called insane. 
I answered. I would rather be called insane than stupid. But he did not get me. I think of Einstein saying two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. Check out the series Genius about Picasso. And whatever you do, don't miss Howard's End by E.M. Forrester. More about Howard's End next week. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In light, light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of Nomi Prince, former Wall Street executive, current investigative journalist, has just brought out a new book, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. She has that rare combination of deep knowledge and brilliant writing. Her new work throws unflinching light on the power players and dark conspiracies of international finance. Nomi Prince will speak on Sunday evening, May 6th, 7.30 at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. There's wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit. Vilma V will host. Get tickets at independent bookstores or online at brownpapertickets.com for Nomi Prince, May 6th. And you are listening to 